Let's launch this thing! <laughs> I'm Steve, I'm blind, I play video games, and welcome to the Blind Gamer Podcast. In today's episode, I speak with Jason Canham of Household Games and their upcoming game called The Way of the Passive Fist. I'm super excited. Uh, first off, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in to the very first episode of the Blind Gamer Podcast. I have been wanting to do a solo podcast for a long time, and I am super, super excited. Uh, first off, a bit of housekeeping. Uh, future episodes will be released every Monday on YouTube and all podcasting platforms. Uh, please leave a rating and review on iTunes if you like this podcast. I'm trying to hit the new and noteworthy uh, category within iTunes, so ratings, reviews, and uh, subscriptions also do help. So make sure you hit that subscribe button on on iTunes as well. Uh, this episode is brought to you by patreon.com slash Steve Saylor. I know it's a bit of self-promo, shameless self-promo, but I don't care. Uh, but more on that later. Uh, make sure to check out the latest episode of Blind Gamer this week. We're actually... Uh, Wow, actually, I just thought I just had a brain fart. Sorry. <laughs> you, dusting off those cobwebs there, Steve. Okay. Uh, make sure to check out the latest episode of Blind Gamer, uh, where I play Player Unknown's Battlegrounds on Xbox One. Uh, actually, I played that back in December, so this is kind of the first episode back, you know. It's kind of break off the cobwebs so, sort of thing, and I'm excited to be able to play some more Blind Gamer episodes, uh, but make sure you check out that uh, episode. Uh, we'll be actually be talking about Player Unknown's Battlegrounds in just a little bit. Anyway, welcome Thank you so much for checking this podcast out. I really do appreciate it. I know I say that a lot, but uh, and it may seem kind of like I'm it's cliche at this point, but no, I really do appreciate anyone and everyone who listens to my voice or watches me on YouTube. Uh, it means so much to me, and I'm very excited to start this journey with you. Uh, it's the first step. It's, sorry, it's, sorry, it's the first step on a journey that even though obviously I may stumble even on my own words, I may stumble because of my lack of depth perception. I just keep doing what I always do and that's just get up, brush myself off and keep walking. So uh, I will promise that I will deliver the podcast as, as best as I know how and I'm really excited to kind of kind of jump back into spoken word content, even though some of you may be watching this on YouTube more than on my podcast. Uh, but I am so excited. I actually studied in radio to be an on-air announcer. So getting back into kind of that sort of mode again. And uh, I actually, I graduated with honors, by the way. I was the, that was the top of my class in radio. That, that may not seem like a lot. It's not like I'm getting a 4.0 GPA in university, I'll get a PhD in radio, which, now I think about it, should be a thing. But I did graduate top of my class. So you can expect some honor roll type material on this podcast. <laughs> so, wow, that was just very egotistical of me just now. So I'm sorry. Uh, anyway... <laughs> I talk so much that, that, that my, my, I'm using my phone as kind of like my little teleprompter in, in front of me, and uh, it just died on me. So great. Okay. Awesome. So let's jump into what I've been playing this week. There's two games, actually, that I've been checking out. Uh, L.A. Noir on the Nintendo Switch. I know it came back, uh, back out in uh, November of last year, in 2017, uh, but I'm still playing it. I, I, you got you to gotta think about this. I play games slowly. 
I it's hard for me to be able to kind of just jump in and just play a game for like hours and hours upon end. So I can only really play it on times that I'm sort of available. And mostly it's actually like on my way to work on the streetcar uh, using public transit. So that's how I've been playing it, L.A. Noir, And it is fun. I actually never got a chance to play L.A. Noir when it came out originally. I actually did buy the game on Xbox 360. And for the longest time, I actually had it still wrapped in plastic sitting on my shelf. And I actually had to sell it in order to be able to buy the Nintendo Switch, which is hilarious to me. Now, think about it. I sold L.A. Noir so I could play it, so I can buy the Nintendo Switch only within like a few months to actually uh, play it again, buy it again for the Nintendo Switch. I don't, that's a weird, ironic circle, but uh, I really am enjoying it. It's kind of the game that I, I... It is a bit tough because I want to be able to have the suspects or the people I'm interviewing uh, answer my questions correctly. I want to be able to choose the right response to a question when I'm interrogating somebody, but I can never seem to do, especially on this one case that I'm on. Uh, if you've played the game, sorry, there's going to be a tiny bit of spoilers, but there's this one case. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's essentially it's a, where uh, a woman it had kind of uh, careened a car or lost control of a car and hit the side of a, of a billboard just across the street from uh, the police station. And she th- swears that it was a producer because she was an actress and it was a producer that kind of... Uh, that did it and and kind of rigged the car to to for the brakes to not work and I don't think I probably had more than maybe two or three questions correct uh, out of like almost ten so I'm probably not getting the greatest rating on this case right now uh, I'm so severely tempted to just restart the whole thing that I'm just kind of um it's very tempting it's just sitting in that options menu and it but it's hard. Uh, so I'll, I'll probably say that's probably the hardest case I've had to sort of figure out, but beyond that, it's, it's still, I'm still enjoying it and still having a lot of fun. Uh, the next game I've actually been playing kind of on a regular console. I, I, those who don't know, I'm, I do have a PlayStation VR and I got the VR demo disc that it came with and I was trying to kind of find a few games to sort of be able to try out and, and try a few of the demos. And there's one that kind of stood out to me. I had heard talked about before, and that's the game called Moss. If those who don't know what Moss is, essentially you're playing kind of like a fantasy game, kind of sort of like Lord of the Rings, maybe. I mean, you're kind of like you're you're a mouse with a sword, essentially, and you're kind of going through these castles and, and these fan- fantasy lands, and you're kind of fighting um, essentially monsters that are uh, would be uh, the equivalent size to a mouse. So, like a snake would be a giant sort of like a giant snake if you were a human size. Uh, but it's, I started playing the demo of it in, in VR. I was just, I was blown away by kind of how, how simple and sweet and how just amazing that, that game looks. And just the few little levels that I was able to play on the demo version, I really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, as of recording this right now, I'm not too sure if the game is out yet, I remember hearing a, a lot about it uh, at sort of a few E3s, and you have to know this about me. I'm not the sort of the greatest expert at video games. I, 
over like only within the past three years, I've been slowly kind of getting back into sort of video game news and what's been happening in video games. I've been a casual gamer for most of my life. So a lot of the games references that are mostly lost on me. So a lot, even a lot of sort of the stuff that's happened within video games over the past couple of years, I'm still a bit lost in. So I'm not too sure if Moss is out yet. But if it is, go check it out. I'll definitely be uh, buying that game as soon as it, it, it does come out. And if it is out, I will be getting it. Uh, if not, check out the demo if you have PlayStation VR. It is, it is an amazingly well-built game. And I just, I, I, I had so much joy playing it. And it's challenging, too. It's actually kind of like one of those, it's one of those, I, like, even though it's, you can use the PlayStation 4 controller. I think it would do better with the PlayStation Move controller. So I think I might try that out next if I actually get to play full of the game because uh, I have the Move controllers now. At the time, I didn't have it. I just had the DualShock. And so I think I might use that because I think it just the DualShock didn't really work out as well for me control-wise. But I was kind of excited to be able to play it. So anyway, that's why I've been playing this week. Next up... Uh, I'm going to be going into a bit of some of the news and stuff that's happening within the video game and accessibility gaming world uh, in a section that I or segment that I like to call blindly reading the news. So <laughs> I may have to sort of come up with a better title. I don't know if you like it. Leave a comment down below or uh, send me a, 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 a tweet or whatever, a post at, at Steve Saylor, pretty much on everything. Uh, anyway, so the first story I have on Blindly Reading the News, Intel made smart glasses that look normal. Uh, this is written by Dieter Bonn on The Verge. And essentially, it's a glasses, remember the kind of the Google Glass that you that looked kind of weird? It sort of looked like this weird kind of like... Arm thing that kind of like had this little glass that thing that actually had a, like a, a, a camera and it sort of like gave you like notifications like on your like just in front of you, um, but it looked really odd. I was kind of hoping that Google Glass would sort of evolve and turn into st glasses that actually look like normal glasses. Well, it looks like that Intel may have done that. Uh, so I'm gonna be reading a little bit actually from the article. Uh, the most important parts of Intel's new Vaunt smart glasses are the pieces that were left out. There's no camera to creep people out, no button to push, no gesture area to swipe, no glowing LCD screen, no weird arm floating in front of the lens, no speaker and no microphone for now. From the outside, the Vaunt glasses look just like eyeglasses. When you're wearing them, you see a stream of information on what looks like a screen, but it's actually being projected onto your retina. At its core, Vaunt is simply a system for displaying a small heads-up style display in your peripheral vision. It can show you some simple messages like directions or notifications. It works over Bluetooth with either an Android phone or an iPhone, much in the same way your smartwatch does, which I do have a smartwatch. I absolutely love it. I have the Apple Watch uh, Series 1, if you're wondering. Uh, taking commands from an app that runs in the background to control it. So pretty much similar to the Pebble smartwatch uh, and actually you know what also the apple watch because it has a, an app that uh, that is on it but i don't but it doesn't need to run into the background uh, whereas the pebble watch at least for the iphone definitely did uh, going back to the article, though I only saw two versions, this is uh, Dieter talking, uh, though I only saw two versions in Intel's new devices group, NDG, San Francisco offices, Intel envisions having many different styles available when the product formally launches. When we look at what types of new devices are out there, we are really excited about head-worn products, says Itai Vonshak. 
hope I'm saying that correctly. He's the head of products for NDG. Head-worn products are hard because people assign a lot of attributes to putting something on their head. It means something about their personality. That's Von Chalk's political way of saying other smart glasses look terrible. So his goal was to create something that has, and as he puts it over and over again, zero social cost. One might say that this is a, that this amounts to little more than a Pebble smartwatch on your face, especially because Von Schock designed Pebble's excellent timeline interface. So that's pretty cool. Actually, the guy they got from Pebble is uh, is making this before the company was acquired and shut down. But Intel has grand plans for the Von's tiny display. Before we get into that, let's just say lay down the hardware basics. On the right stem of the glasses sits a suite of electronics designed to power a very low power laser, technically a VC. S-E-L, or V-Cell, I think that's how you would pronounce it. That, la that laser shines a red monochrome image somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 by 150 pixels onto a holographic reflector on the glass's right lens. The image is then reflected into the back of your eyeball directly onto the retina. The left stem also houses electronics, so the glasses are equally weighted on both sides. So yeah, lasers in your eye. Don't worry, though, says Eastwood. It, I don't know what Eastwood is. It, I, I kind of jumped in a little bit of the article. Uh, it is a class one laser. It's such low power that we don't need it certified, he says. In the case of Vaunt, it is so low power that it's at the very bottom end of a class one laser. So there is a video that The Verge actually created for this article. And uh, if uh, if you kind of check out the episode uh, show notes, either on YouTube or on podcast services, you can actually be able to see the video. And I'm gonna be showing a little bit of it on the YouTube uh, video of this. Basically, the, the glasses just look kind of like a big sort of blocky glasses that you wouldn't even tell that there's anything electronic about it. It just kind of looks like normal glasses. And seeing the video, essentially, it just kind of looks like a little notification screen. And it's, it's beams the back of your retinas. That does sound scary. And I'm wondering, actually, if I can actually be able to do anything with it. Uh, as for if those of me not know, my vision is called nystagmus, which is an involuntary eye movement. So my eye moves back and forth. So I don't know whether or not that the laser essentially will be able to hit the back of my retina and it will be clear enough. They do say in the article that, or in the video as well, that essentially even with people with poor vision will still be able to see everything really clearly. I don't know if that's going to be the case right now. Again, it's in the very prototype stage, but it was something that kind of caught my eye pun in, not intended, uh, and uh, I just kind of was excited to sort of see that, so I'm interested to see what Intel does further with it, and that would be great. I would be very much on board. I was almost on board with the Google Glass, and I was trying to see if I can actually be able to get a pair for myself, but they weren't releasing them in Canada when they were doing the demo program, so I think Intel is going to be doing a demo program-like system for Google Glass, or for what they did, similar to what they did with Google Glass. Uh, I'm hoping I can actually be able to get a pair, and for those who are actually watching from Intel, uh, please Send me a pair. I would like, to, or at least have me try it out as a demo. I would like to be able to see if A, it works for me, and B, uh, if it does work, uh, how cool could it be that I can actually be able to have a pair of smart glasses that uh, uh, kind of sort of makes me seem like a cyborg or at least see things that no normal people wouldn't be able to see. So that's kind of cool. Uh, next story. It'll be the last story uh, of blindly reading the news. Fortnite overtakes PUBG as the biggest video game in the world. That's kind of a misleading title. This is written by Game Central on Metro.co.uk. 
I'm going to probably say GTA 5 is probably the biggest video game in the world because I think I just heard or a story that it said that it was like 90 million copies sold of Grand, uh, GTA 5. Just saying. However, as far as uh, concurrent gamers on a, on a, on a game, uh, apparently Fortnite is beating PUBG. Uh, now, actually, I read this off of the Metro.co.uk, but I also saw it on IGN as well. Um, now, this actually came, this article came out like within the, like on Friday or Thursday, uh, like February 8th, February 9th. Uh, but this actually happened apparently on fe Sunday, February 4th. So it's about a week old, but I guess the, the, just re the reports of this have kind of come out now. So I'm reading from the metro.co.uk. And despite the problems over the weekend, Fortnite has broken Player Unknown's Battlegrounds record for the most number of concurrent players. Epic Games has already taken to describing Fortnite as the biggest game in the world, and now they have the stats to prove it, as the game hit a peak of 3.4 million concurrent players on Sunday, February 4th. That beats PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds record of 3.2 million players on Steam. Now, that's a clarifying note. It's, it's on Steam, and it's not considering consoles, because even though Fortnite's on PlayStation 4 and... PUBG is on Xbox One, which I have played. Again, I've done an episode of that. Check out a Blind Gamer on youtube.com slash snowball. Uh, so it's obviously intensifying the rivalry between the two games. There are definitely signs that PUBG's popularity on PC may have peaked, as for the first time ever, the average player count went down instead of up last month. But having only just launched in December on Xbox One in a state well behind that of the PC version, it could still end up beating Fortnite in the long run, especially if there's a PlayStation 4 version further down the line. Now, that actually, the Metro does make a good note here because technically, yes, it did beat, it, Fortnite did beat PUBG on one day, but PUBG does have a very rabid fan base, especially on PC. Xbox, actually, they've kind of like sold a lot, uh, at least uh, from what I remember, is actually definitely over a, mil a million copies from uh, from what I've read uh, and way more now, actually, probably now I'm thinking about it. But, and I'm one of them, and so I'm I'm excited to sort of see kind of the rivalry and see because what I love about it is that it's it's two central like competitors and what I and what I like about competition essentially is that one will all like they'll always try to outcompete each other so that means there's more innovation there's more uh, like developers being like active within that game and trying to be able to develop that game further and there's going to be some really really cool features and the players are going to be the ones that are going to benefit from that so now I haven't played Fortnite yet and actually I will be going into battle royale mode at some point uh, soon if you want to follow me on PSN and maybe we'll be able to play a match uh, my gamer tag is blind gamer Steve uh, so you can be able to follow me there and maybe we'll play a game together but I will be playing Fortnite at some point I've just been watching a lot of streams and a lot of sort of let's play videos on it and I've just been excited I've been sort of holding off for a while just because I'm not great at online games even PUBG sort of drew me in a little bit but I'm still not that great I think the highest I ever got in PUBG is 22 so it wasn't great but uh I still like I've never won a chicken dinner as of yet it, but I'm want to be able to at least try battle around to see like I would be interested in that. And actually, I like the art style in Fortnite a little bit better than PUBG. PUBG just kind of seems a little bit more bland, and, whereas Fortnite just kind of has that sort of animation style, that I, an art style that I just like a lot. So I may sort of jump ship to Fortnite. We'll see. I don't know. Just, you know what? Just follow me on my, on my YouTube channel. You'll see when I actually do a Fortnite video. Anyway, that's it for the news. 
Today's conversation we're going to be starting up right now is with Jason Canham from Household Games, creator of Way of the Pacifist. Uh, this is part one of a two-part conversation. In part one, we chatted about Jason's beginnings as a gamer and as a game developer. In part two, we'll be chatting about a Way of the Pacifist itself and sort of how he developed the game as an accessible game. Because some of you may not know, if you're not sure of what Way of the Pacifist is, it's actually a game that's kind of designed from the ground up as being an accessible game for any type of gamer to play, whether you have uh, vision issues or whether you are deaf, whether you're uh, blind, uh, whether you have mobility issues, so you can only play with one hand or with your feet or whatever, this game is designed to be able to play from any perspective in any controller type situation. So it'll be coming out actually very, very soon. I'm one of the very first uh, people to be able to play this game. And so I will be doing a blind gamer on, on that next week. Uh, so make sure to check it out. But first off, you can be able to listen to or watch part one of our conversation. Uh, it, honestly, it was a cool conversation, and it's the first time I ever sat down and did an interview in a couple of years. So please forgive my my little awkwardness in it. I kind of felt like that there was times of just like, yeah, maybe I should have just sort of went in a little bit in a different direction but you know it's first time i talked to sort of anyone in that kind of recorded setting in a while so i, I will get better at it as time goes on is that just a little bit rusty that's all so anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. But first, before we get into that interview, this conversation is brought to you by patreon.com slash Steve Saylor, where for the price of a coffee at Starbucks, if you go to Starbucks, or at least maybe cheaper, if or I don't know, cheaper if you, or if you like a really, really souped up the coffee at Starbucks, uh, you can get episodes of Blind Gamer early and episodes of this podcast early, including part two of today's conversation with Jason right now. Head to patreon.com slash Steve Saylor for more details. And I thank you in advance for your support. So let's jump into the conversation. All right. Hey, thanks, Steve. Uh, this is kind of weird. I'm, I'm doing this interview before I even really decided sort of how this podcast is going to work. So uh, this is the first time I'm ever doing this. Actually, the first time I'm actually talking about a podcast on camera. Uh, and what better way to be able to uh, start off this hamster wheel than uh, <laughs> my buddy Jason Canham, who is the director of Household Games, if I'm correct? Exactly right, yeah. And uh, he's got a game that's coming out that I'm really excited to be able to play on Blind Gamer. It's called Way of the Passive Fist. Now, uh, before we kind of get talking about that game, I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about you. Sure. Uh, so, A, uh, where'd you grow up? Where are you, where are you from? Um, so, I mean, I grew up in a Canadian military family, so that's always been one of the toughest questions for me to answer. The, question's all, uh, the answer's always all over. Oh, so okay. I lived on the East Coast. Um, when I was very young, uh, uh, we spent a year in Germany. I was oh. living abroad on a Canadian military base oh. uh, in Germany and uh, mostly in Ontario, though. Okay. I would say most. I, I was born just outside of Ottawa Okay. Uh, in a little town called Pembroke. Oh, and then, uh, and yeah, but, and I, but I've lived in Toronto for 11 years now. Wow. Which is, which is almost a third of my life. So, like, Toronto's really home. Like, I do consider Toronto home, so. Okay. So, uh, growing up, I, 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 I like to always kind of ask this, uh, this question because it, it this question changes, obviously, over time. So, I'm gonna, we're going to get to that, uh, the second part of the question in, mm -hmm. in a bit. But growing up, what was your favorite video game to play? Certainly. So, actually, I, I love that question because it... Uh, really ties into my origins with game development. Okay. Like, I started gaming on a Atari 2600. Okay. And a Commodore 64 computer. Oh, wow. That far back. And my favorite, so that's like, uh, you know, early to mid-80s. Sure. Uh, my favorite games were the ones that had built-in level editors. 
Oh, no way. Really? So there was a platformer uh -huh. on the Commodore 64. It's simply called Wizard. And it was a single screen platformer. Yeah. You're a little purple wizard. Uh, it's on single screen levels, kind of Donkey Kong-esque. Yep. And in every level, you have to collect a key and take it to a keyhole. And that's how you pass the level. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really fun. You know, you climb ropes, you climb ladders, you shoot fireballs. But it gave you the ability to build your own maps. That's cool. And I didn't even I, know about this. Yeah. And That's awesome. When I was like five years old, that blew my mind because I was just like, wait, no, you're, you're asking me? <laughs> oh, you, really? You want me to do it? Wow. Cool. And you, you, and it was really a really simple system. You painted in bricks. Yeah. You painted in ropes. You painted in. Um, actually, it worked all very similar to like Mario Maker. Oh, no Which, way. Which, like, more recently, that's right. why when Nintendo announced that, I was like, that's my new favorite thing. That's amazing. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and there was quite a few. There was, um, on Commodore 64, Pinball Construction Kit, which let you okay, build yeah. your own, like, virtual, like, pinball machines. Wow. And there was a surprising amount of games that let you build racetracks or levels or mazes and uh -huh. puzzles. Those were my favorite. So instantly, when I was a little kid, I was like, wow, wait, games let me sometimes make games? Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is it. That this is actually is what really cool. So, is that like, have you been wanting to be able to be a game developer uh, pretty much your entire life then? Yes. That was, wow. I was like, like at, it was as young as I remember, I was about five years old. I knew, like, making games. So, how long did it take for you to be able to kind of realize that, like, okay, so that you can, A, you can be able to get a job in it, and like that, it was an achievable uh, sort of job to have? That took a very long time. Okay. And, and just because, like, the nature of the industry, the way yep. it was. So, I mean, as kind of went into the 90s, that turned into Doom Wads, making custom Doom maps, making custom Duke Nukem 3D maps. Okay. Um, and then into the 2000s, it got into ROM hacks. I did a Super Mario World ROM hack. Oh, cool. Where I built my own levels for Super Mario World. Um, but, of course, the dream of being able to do it yourself, you know, indie games obviously didn't really exist the way they do now back sure. then. So it was very much like games were of the scope. They were huge. They were like Hollywood. Yeah. It was like going from like, yeah, I like to film my own movies in my backyard, but how could I ever make a Hollywood film? Yeah. Um, so even into the 2000s, even when I got to be in my 20s, I was like, I really want to make games, but I don't, there really isn't an easy way to do it. Mm -hmm. You got to really get in. Um, so I had a long journey through school. I went to art school. I took computer science in university and I took game design in college. Wow. So okay. I, I took a lot of education just trying to be this multifaceted kind of professional. And right when I was finishing school was kind of the beginning of this indie game era, like kind of the early days of it. Right. So I was like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. Okay. Um, so it was kind of like my enthusiast, hobbyist, professional career kind of started to ramp up and come to a head right when indie games were kind of starting to be a thing. Right. And luckily... Those things came together, and I've had a chance to work on many great games and now make my own. That's cool. So going back a tiny bit, wait, like what were some of the <laughs> what were some of the games that 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 uh, that you tried to build to make that like uh, uh, like just as your own kind of like making sort of just sitting in your kind of in your house or apartment or whatever, mm -hmm. and you were just kind of like uh, like kind of I don't want to say like what if they were failures, but just like sure. what were the, what were sort of the the uh, kind of the, the building blocks of you want uh, of thinking like I could actually be able to make my own game. Certainly. So like graduating, if you would say, like from like level editors, where yeah. someone's like, "We already made a game. You can make levels for it." Sure. Um, you know, I, I started learning uh, simple programming, like QBasic, like basic programming in the '90s, and just really trying to hammer that out. And 
going from someone who's already made a working game that they just want you to make levels for mm-hmm. versus making it completely from scratch was that big jump where I was like, oh, man. Wait, you're telling me I got to make the gravity even? Oh, <laughs> no, this is a lot of work. And <laughs> I think that's, like, one of the big things when people get into making games and they realize how much work is involved. What was um, the, the – did you have an engine that you built off of, or did you literally build everything from scratch? This was, like, back then building from scratch. Wow. And – to speak to the thing about like indie games kind of being their own thing, sure. Like game engines as we know them today also weren't prevalent back then. That's true. Yeah, it was kind of like you're like, well, how are games made? Well, they're made with programming. Well, then I guess I better learn like a base. Pro- I better start learning C sharp. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, C plus plus at the time, or I better start learning C. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like so. well, like what was it like? I think Unreal was kind of like the the first kind of real kind of like engine that consumers can sort of get access to? Certainly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or like Unreal the, maybe was like the, the very Quake first or, time. Or, or like the Doom engine kind of thing. Uh, like, or, exactly. But then again, that's well, kind of level editor sort of deal. It was, but yeah. it was also their own tech. Like, un- I think Unreal, for me personally, was the very first time like I heard that used in like the first time the word engine was used. Right. And the first time that, for me, that I, there was the perception that like, oh, a company built the tools to make their game, but now they're kind of like, giving it out a little bit or they're letting people have access to it sure. and yeah people were able to just build unreal maps and originally and they didn't release the full engine at the, at, at the start it was just mm-hmm. kind of like a level editor but ex- exactly so uh in the 90s you know when i was like in high school and stuff i was like okay i guess i got i gotta learn computer programming so I started learning base computer programming and i was like how am i gonna make a whole game out of this like geez um so that's why, like I said, that's why that kind of led me to computer science university. Okay. So it still didn't like coalesce. It still didn't come together. Right. But I think uh, like like with all that knowledge, it just sort of like it kind of adds to it, like to the eventually sort of the mindset of being like, okay, like you cause it, it, like I always yeah. feel like making a game is is just really advanced problem solving in oh, a very absolutely. artistic way. Exactly. Game design itself as a discipline is problem solving. Yeah. It's it's elegant and beautiful problem solving. Exactly. Yeah. Game mechanics are solutions to problems because that's typically how you create a game. You're like, well, we have to present the player with a challenge or the problem. Right. And then the game mechanic is the solution to that problem. And that's kind of how you make the fun because you want to give somebody an obstacle, mm-hmm. a way to overcome it, and then it feels good to overcome it. And to me, that's like what game design is. So, yeah, mentioning that it's problem solving yeah. is, is perfect. It's oh, exactly cool. correct. Yeah. I, 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 I like, didn't even think of that. That was like, that's, it. that's something I kind of thought about for a while. I'm like, you were it's, on it. It's, it's like, because it, I, I, I like to sort of think of my, like uh, in the sort of the double, like kind of the, both sides of the, of the equation. Mm-hmm. And like, I hear like, Stuff like when when people complain about like uh, like loot boxes in in, in Battlefront Two and like programmers like and, and they are like games that are kind of are there's a lot of it like okay so actually no it's a better example for Mass Effect Andromeda mm-hmm. when the Bioware didn't go out to build and make like a crappy game it just so happened that it's just like they the the problems that they tried to solve they couldn't solve and uh, mm-hmm. like and, and I was like I always kind of felt for them I'm like. Oh man, it's just like that's that that kind of is a blow to just kind of like it, like they just couldn't be able to solve all the problems in time for 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 shipment and exactly yeah yeah exactly and like no one in no one in the history of game development has ever set out to make a bad game sure yeah so anytime something doesn't live up to expectations yeah the the correct like yeah the the right reaction is to sympathize and be like <laughs> yeah I guess there were there were troubles you know there yeah. were obstacles that they couldn't get get over themselves. And, like, you know, whether that is deadlines, whether it is budgets, whether it's... And no one will ever know. Yeah. But exactly, with every project, you have those kind of constraints, and you just have to work with them. Right. 
So what uh, what was it? Uh, so when and how did you get your first uh, job in game development? Certainly. So uh, after I finished college and I just continued working on like some side projects, uh, I got my first couple of jobs working in like mobile game development, mm -hmm. working with mobile games. Um, and that was uh, that was really, really interesting. I mean, I was really fortunate because it was my introduction to the industry. Uh, it was my first professional job, and it was with a company uh, I had a great deal of reverence for. So in Toronto, several years ago, there was a, a Capcom studio that All did right, mobile game yeah. development. And uh, I was fortunate to get on and join that team. So it was a really fun experience. Mm -hmm. uh, technically, we were making Mega Man games. Okay. Like, you know, we yeah, were, in a way. <laughs> we, were, uh, we were, you know, we were optimizing and releasing, like, Mega Man 2 ports okay. for really old-school flip phones, like old Motorola's oh, and old Nokia right. phones, like, pre-smartphones. Yeah, yeah, I forgot so that they were doing that. When I tell people that I got my start in mobile game development, they instantly think, oh, iPhone games, freemium, yeah. loot box stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, we're talking about Street Fighter 2 for, for a Motorola Razor. Wow. Like, I don't even want to think of... about like, how to be able to pack in. Because essentially, like, how, how, how big was the file size for those kind of games? Well, that's the thing. Old Nintendo, Super Nintendo games were microscopic, relatively. Really? Yeah. They, they were unfathomably small. Like, they were, they were optimized and they were... Uh, they were packaged very well. Like they were really nice, streamlined. Like they're beautiful. Like modern game dev, I always say, feels a bit lazy in comparison. Yeah, because it's like, yeah, we'll just pack in a couple, uh, just another gigabyte of, of data. Yeah, yeah, we can no problem <laughs> yeah. with the constraints they were under, like data wise back then, were yeah. crazy. So actually, a game like Mega Man Two, even could fit on a cell phone, no problem, in like five hundred and twelve K. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I guess the ROMs were kind of were pretty the small. ROMs were, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like you know, it, it, we had to strip down a little bit of Street Fighter to get something like sure. that. Sure. At least to be able know. to make like the, the controls easy enough to to work with. Like, yeah, with, exactly. Like, with, with a like, numpad. The numpad, yeah. <laughs> so, like, when you like, how did you go from? Because uh, I like uh, you, you you work for or you you worked for uh, Drinkbox Studios. Um, yes. Was there so, like a few other developers that you worked with before you came to Drinkbox? Same kind of thing. Uh, I kind of bounced around Toronto for a few years, working for different like mobile companies um, and casual game companies because there sure. were quite a bit in Toronto. Like uh, I worked for uh, a little bit at uh, Game Loft. Yeah. Uh, and that was just before. And then it so happened that uh, there was an opportunity, and I got to join up with the guys at Drinkbox. Which was really, like I said, like finding home. Like, yeah, that felt good. I I know a few people who work who work at Drinkbox, and mm -hmm. I'm just like every time I hear stories out of that studio, I'm just like, <laughs> man, like if like I, I would I would try I would try to be able to be like I, I could probably work there somehow. I could weasel my way because I just <laughs> want to be able to work there. It just looks like so much fun. So, were you in the development stage for uh, for those who don't know, Drinkbox makes Guacamelee yep. severed, mm -hmm. and uh, they're about to work. They're about to. Uh, we're working on Guacamelee two. Currently. I heard yes. Uh, and so, like, were you in those conversations of like how Guacamelee got started, or was it just be like you got told, okay, yeah, this is the game that we're that we're making? It was well underway when I joined. Oh, I it was see. well okay. in hand. Yeah, uh, and then I came in towards the end of development. Okay, um, and I got to do, well. It was really good because like so like yeah, really fun to like go back to my origins. Yeah. I had joined Guacamelee when, like, it was well established. That team knew what they were building, mm -hmm. but uh, they needed level design. Okay. And so I was able to provide some of that, which is like having me my expertise. So it was an instance of working with a game that was almost done. Mm -hmm. Its rules were established. Its combat was established. 
Uh, so it literally was about going back to when you were five years old. And it's exactly. like, I get to play with an editor. Exactly. Oh, it was cool. the drink box, like the tools they use yeah. internally. And they were like, yeah, use this level editor to make some levels with us. That's and that cool. was awesome. And then that got turned into uh, more stuff because they, they released a secondary version of that game, the Super yeah. Turbo Championship Edition. Yeah, yeah. And I got to have even more uh, content added to that. Like the, the new stuff in that version of the game are all my levels from really? scratch. Every single awesome. one of those are all yours. Yeah, the wow. the two big new areas that got added to the game were were mine. Like, so um, what what was the uh, like? I, I, I knowing a few developers as, as I do, uh, and I'm I, again I'm mm-hmm. sort of new into the game development world. Uh, I, I would imagine that there's probably a few tiny little like Easter eggs that a, a, oh, a level sure. designer kind of put in. Is there anything that you put into Guacamelee, either the, uh, the first or the, or the Turbocharged Edition, yeah. uh, that that no one has kind of picked up on? Um, there was there were two things that uh, that I specifically requested and worked with the team. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I worked with the artists to help make sure it looked appropriate, and I worked sure. with everyone else. Because um, everything was a team effort. Yeah. Uh, but the two things I wanted, one of them people found relatively quickly, which was a Dark Souls reference. Okay. Uh, you could only see the reference if you started the game on the harder mode. Oh, okay. So uh, to let players that would who make are sense like, just Dark Souls. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and like I said, not everybody likes to play on hard. It's not for everybody. Yeah. But those who did, and it was quite obvious, they found it right away. Yeah. And then there was a super secret that uh, I tucked away. That nobody found. I had to like tweet. I had to give clues and actually reached out to a couple. A couple games journalists reached out to me and they're like, "Can you tell us how to find this thing?" <laughs> and eventually they did because it was really obscure. Okay. Um, which was can really fun. Can you say what it is? Yeah, certainly. Because yeah, yeah. there's you can find information on the internet now. Like it yeah. got out, which was uh, the original version of Guacamelee. You know, was quite humorous, uh, but it had a lot of uh, internet meme humor in the game. Yes, it was all true. over the yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when we redid Super Turbo Championship Edition, uh, they—I I should say they—because it was the the art team responsible as well as other team members—took um, a lot of the meme humor out. Oh, okay. And replaced it with more because people didn't like the meme humor, but they liked the referential humor. Okay. Like references to other video games yeah. and like the people were like, "Oh, that's awesome! I love that." Yeah. But when it was just a straight meme, they frowny faced it. <laughs> Uh, which yeah. I think it's all it's it's, it's all funny. Yeah, I, I, if I saw that, if I saw a meme in there, I'd be like, "Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty. It's cheesy, and I love it." Exactly. <laughs> but references to stuff, it's like, okay, it's cheesy, but it's cool. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Whether it's cool versus exactly. Yeah. Um, so I took all the memes and put them in one room. <laughs> so they're all in somewhere in one room. Um, and uh, there's just a certain area of the game that when yeah. you enter it. Uh, when you enter a certain town in the game, there's a hidden timer. Um, and when you enter in, people typically don't even notice. And some people have, but they couldn't figure it out. Uh-huh. But when you enter the the town, after about, I think it's like 10 or 12 seconds, you hear a door slam. Okay. Because you have to get to a certain part of the town yeah. upon entering within 12 seconds okay. to make it through that door before it slams shut. And uh... then you can find the meme room that's full of a disco ball and swirling lights and all the memes are like, here they are, here's your memes, guys. <laughs> that is hilarious. So, like, that was super fun to do. And, uh, yeah, it requires, like, 
you have to do a certain like set of moves at exactly the right timing to right. get to like that room in time. Okay. Uh, and that was fun. And yeah, yeah, like that's the kind of level design stuff. Like Easter eggs have been around almost as long as games have. Sure. Some of the oldest games have Easter eggs in them. Yeah. They're super fun. Yeah. And yeah, it's one of the most fun things to put in. Okay. The first Easter egg that uh, I believe like that is truly documented as the first Easter egg uh, was in an Atari game. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in the Atari game Adventure. Okay. And it was because back in those days, like, like it was partially due to the, like, uh, uh, as I understand it, due to the way they kind of had work contracts, mm -hmm. as well as just like the ROM sizes. You know, yeah. building in an elaborate credit sequence would be bigger than the Atari game itself. Right, right. But the programmer of the game, he didn't, he never got credit. Oh. So he put his name like hidden in the game. Oh. And like through a certain sequence of stuff, you can find a hidden room, and uh -huh. the room just says created by. And it has his name. Oh, why did... And that's, 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 that's cool. as I understand it, is, like, credit is the first Easter egg. Because, like, his bosses didn't approve it. Like, mm -hmm. no one knew it was there. Like, mm -hmm. he literally snuck it in. And he's like, people will, will remember this. That's pretty cool. And they kind of snuck it right wow. in. And, like, and Atari games have a lot of those. And quite often that's what it is. Like, the Atari version of Donkey Kong, if you push certain buttons on the title screen, it just changed the copyright date to become the initials of the programmer. That, you know, like, that and, makes sense. Like, That's pretty so cool. Easter eggs were almost like a necessity for people to get credit. Right. It was kind yeah, of Yeah, I think it was because like, Mario was kind of like the first one I could remember, but I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, you're right. I think going back, like, of course they would have had to do that. It just, uh, that, that, that makes it like, I guess programmers are just kind of like, they're just sort of, that. that's the mindset. It's like, ah, it's going to put like a little, yeah, little yeah. tiny Easter and egg in there. You know, a lot of people could argue like they're the ones with the power. Like yeah. programmers typically are the end of the line. You yeah. know, artists create beautiful artwork. Musicians make excellent music. Sure. Game designers design content. But ultimately, it gets the programmers the one implementing. Like yeah. the programmers, the one with the final, you know, the final. They're putting it all together. They're right. the architect. Right. So if they want to, like, you know, take a brick and put a little, a little Maltese <laughs> falcon in yeah. there, and then push that brick back <laughs> into place, and know that yeah. the only they'll know it's there. Yeah, that's that's, up, that's to them. That's pretty cool. So um, when you moved off uh, of uh, Guacamole, in, in, did you worked on Severed, correct? Yes, I did. I so was fortunate to work on Severed as so well. So you worked over from that from the from the very beginning, or like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. So like, what was what was it kind of going into it, like? Because I mean, those two games are like, although similar in art style, because mm -hmm. I like uh, the art is just like the artists there are just are yeah. absolutely amazing. Um, but like a completely different sort of style of game. Um, what was like? Uh, what like? What was sort of the mindset going into Severed? It's like, okay, we want to make something that's completely different than Guacamelee, or was it that you like you thought of like someone thought of a cool idea and to be like, oh, yeah, let's let, let's just make that. Well, there were people like that. Those kinds of decisions were in the hands of like other people in the studio. Like you had the the studio founders, yeah, who are like the guy the guys in charge, sure. And then you had people who were in creative roles who make those decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, they, like for like you know their own motivations are their own. Mm -hmm. You know, there's things you'd have to ask them, but uh, you know it was born out of you know um, the studio working together, uh, prototyping trying to find things that worked but ultimately there were just ideas that came like i said like from above that were like this is what we want to do and the cool thing about Drinkbox, you know uh from my experience of being there you know is that you know they're not a studio that's married 
to any particular, you know, they're not like, oh, we're going to be a sports game studio. We're going to just make racing games forever or right. we're going to make first person. Like, they're open to anything. They're always open to the best idea. Gotcha. And so, like, you know, after internal discussions with the people who make those kind of decisions, mm-hmm. they were like, this, this is what we want to do because it's the best idea. That's cool. So, you know, what led them to that, I can't say. Right. That's, that's to them to speak to. But I can say, like, they always make the decision on what's the most fun, what will be the best game. Okay. And so- that studio is always just working on what is the best game. That's and cool. And their track record speaks to it, and, like, they make amazing stuff. That's for sure. So what was your favorite part about working on Severed? Uh, once again, level design. Yeah. Because it was so different. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you're making a platformer, it's, you know, not, I won't say easy, but, like, it's very clear. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're making a platformer, it's like, well, you need to jump around. You need to fight guys. So the challenge is always going to be... It's going to be area-based. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be location-based. It's going to be how the platforms are configured. It's going to be how strong the enemies you're fighting. Like, whereas Severed was something completely different. It was a game about exploration. Yeah. It was a game like you can't fall in in Severed and die. There's no. There's nothing to jump over. Right. There's no real obstacles. You're kind of free to just you take steps. Yeah. So the level design kind of had to change into how do we make exploration interesting? Mm-hmm. And that's how the puzzles were developed. That's how the level design was developed. Okay. And, you know, I worked with people who gave me direction, worked with people who uh, knew, like, what we wanted to accomplish. Mm-hmm. But when I was fleshing out levels and trying to offer my contribution, uh, it was just, like, it was really refreshing that it was different. Wow. And okay. so that's what's interesting. And when you change gears and you're making a different type of game than you were before, mm-hmm. uh, is really fun because you, as a game designer, you ask yourself, well, where's the challenge coming from? How yeah. does the player feel satisfaction? Sure. And those can come in different ways. You know, leaping over a pit and barely making it to the other side is the different kind of satisfaction than being offered a puzzle and you kind of you think it out, you come to a solution. That feels equally as exhilarating. Right. And it's right. fun to like think of those different ways of challenging people. That's cool. So kind of moving forward, like what was uh what what kind of prompted the decision to be like to leave uh Drinkbox and kind of like, you know what, I kinda wanna I kinda wanna make my own my own thing and make my own game. Sure. Um you know I'm a I'm a creative person. You know, wanting to make my own decisions, wanting to be a master of my own destiny is always something I've strived and endeavored for. So mm-hmm. after being able, after being very fortunate, I will always say to work with that team for as long as I had and get the knowledge I had, um, just sort of like my ambitions were ready. Right. You know, okay. I was like, yeah, I, I want to make something now. Like I want to do something. Okay. And um, so when the time came, I was like, I'm, I'm ready for this. Like, let's do it. Okay, cool. Uh, we'll be right back in a sec. Uh, Cause technically I got to just, Stop recording and record again. Uh, but we'll be we'll, we'll talk about way the passive fist right after this. Thanks, Steve, in the past, because I'm Steve in the future right now. That's right. I jumped in the future. Steve, it's okay. You will get a haircut. <laughs> uh, anyway, if you like that interview, make sure to go to patreon.com slash Steve Saylor so you can actually be able to listen to part two if you want to be able to check out part two. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, I will have part two coming out next Monday. And you'll be able to check that out. And also, again, I'll stay tuned for a Blind Gamer episode where myself and Jason will be playing Way of the Passive Fist. I'm very excited. It's it's a it's a, spoiler alert. I do enjoy myself in that game. So, 
just to say uh if you like this episode please give it a rating and review on itunes uh and make sure to hit that subscribe button i'm in the beginning stages of launching this podcast and i'm trying to hit the new and noteworthy section and ratings and reviews and subscriptions do help so please i would really really do appreciate if you like this podcast please give it a rating and review uh, i would love to be able to hit that new and noteworthy section it would mean so much to be able to kind of like i've never had that happen in the 13 years i've been podcasting i've never been sort of included into the new and noteworthy section uh so uh, if you can be able to help out a blind gamer i would really really do appreciate it subscribe to this channel on youtube at youtube.com snowball if you're watching me right now follow me online at steve sailor pretty much everywhere uh blind gamer steve on psn and xbox live thanks so much for watching and listening as always i remain obediently yours bye bye